Welcome to another Modern Art Notes podcast pandemic bonus episode. I'm Tyler Green. Today, I'm going to chat with two museum directors, Sabina Ekman of the Mildred Lane Kemper Art Museum at Washington University in St. Louis, and Rebecca Rabinow of the Menil Collection in Houston. Given the enormous uncertainty around the still-expanding impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, I thought talking with the directors of two museums that do not rely on earned revenue, especially admissions fees, for a significant part of their budgets might provide a good first look at how the pandemic is impacting art museums. Both the Kemper and the Menil have terrific collections, and both are free to the public. We'll start with my conversation with Sabina Ekman, then after a short break, I'll talk to Rebecca Rabinow. Enjoy! Like many things that have defined our schedules and activities, Tuesday evenings at the Modern must reconfigure. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth invites you to join us, as usual, on Tuesdays from 7 to 8 p.m. for Being There, Revisiting Tuesday Evenings at the Modern, a rebroadcast of past lectures on YouTube. Terry Thornton, Curator of Education, will introduce each presentation with an online chat to follow. Visit www.themodern.org for more information. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art and The Momentary in Bentonville, Arkansas, are working to make sure we stay in touch while we're closed. Crystal Bridges marries art, nature, and architecture with a collection that spans five centuries, miles of trails in an Ozark forest, and a Frank Lloyd Wright house. The Momentary is a new contemporary art space and satellite to Crystal Bridges. The museum's entire collection is available online, in addition to educational tools, podcasts, music playlists, videos, and more for both institutions. We invite followers to step inside the work of Carrie James Marshall via virtual reality video and receive cocktail recipes from the Momentary's Tower Bar to make at home. Follow along for unlimited art content with hashtag CB from home and hashtag MO from home. Go to crystalbridges.org and themomentary.org to learn more. While the new museum remains closed at this time, you can stay engaged with the museum by signing up to receive their biweekly home delivery newsletters at newmuseum.org, and by following the museum on their social media channels. These resources feature rich digital content from the museum's vast archive, as well as content called from their ongoing partnership with Rhizome and New Inc., the new museum's cultural incubator. And we're back. Sabina Ekman, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. A university art museum is open to the broadest public, of course, both physically and otherwise, but it's definitely constructed with students in mind. So how have you tried to adjust to a period, a period of unknown duration as we're taping this, when students aren't physically present? Yes, um, very good question. Uh, we basically also had to close the museum, and that more or less coincided with the a moment where the university closed the campus. So we are uh, we are closed uh, and we only have security uh, in the museum right now uh, and they make sure um, that nobody comes and that the work is safe and that the work remains in good condition. But it was a very abrupt closure. Is there, are there ways in which you have tried to continue to be accessible to to learning or to classes during this interregnum? Yes. Um, 
like so many museums, um, university museums, uh, but also public museums, we tried um, maybe even more than under normal circumstances uh, to connect to people directly uh, through um, uh, virtual means. So on the one hand, um, we are very active on social media, such as Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And then at the same time, uh, our education department um, is trying to adapt to new technologies and learn new technologies uh, to be able to offer virtual um, uh, tours and walkthroughs uh, through the space. And I think we will be able next week to begin with that. Um, we are not beginning uh, with WashU classes because all the all of our um, faculty had to also switch to online teaching and the students are overwhelmed and so is the faculty right now just with trying to end the semester but we have local schools high schools um, with whom we will be working on these first virtual tours uh, and we are trying to do, you know develop them further have specific themes that we can offer um, just um, you know counting and planning on the possibility that we might not be open for quite some time. I went to a university that doesn't exactly have an art museum, um, certainly nothing like like the Kemper. Uh, I've always, um, as a result, probably been uh, jealous of, in awe of university art museums that have study rooms where uh, professors and instructors at the school can can bring students, and not just art history students, to see and consider um, art and its impacts in a broader world. Do you have study rooms? And if mm -hmm. so, how do you, how do you, how do you, how, how do you be accessible to your campus community without having them physically? It's again, a very good question and one which I'm probably not really able to answer. We do have, uh, uh, we do have a, a study room and usually uh, classes or even individual students uh, can make um, appointments and uh, the actual works of art are brought out to them and they can physical, physically examine them. And um, I think um, there is no replacement really for the physical engagement with the work of art by any kind of virtual uh, means. And so for the time being, um, Maybe it is more about, you know, thinking about what it really means to physically engage with the work of art and what it means that we don't have the choice to do so anymore in the current situation uh, than the actual study room experience. I'm sure in the fall, should there still be online classes and also during the summer, there might be possibilities to bring works out and um, via, you know, digital means um, uh, project them online for the students, but that's not the experience they have in the actual study room. That experience um, is for now uh, gone. So it's a, it's a big loss, but maybe it makes us more think about also what physical encounters with works of art mean. Probably all the more so at the Kemper right now, given one of the shows that was on view when the interregnum began was very much 
right. about works of art that I keep laughing. I don't, I'm sorry about that, but sometimes when it's better to laugh than to cry. But it's a show about how uh, works of art physically transform themselves or can be physically transformed. What is, um, what is that show? And, and am, I, am I describing it even remotely fairly? Well, I don't know, but the show is uh, t uh, entitled uh, uh, Multiplied Edition Mat and the Transformable Work of Art. So this is actually a historical um, um, examination and reconstruction of exhibitions that the Swiss uh, artist Daniel Spurry did uh, in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And all works in this exhibition um, are either kinetic objects, so they do move via motors, or they can be transformed by the artist, uh, by the visitor, by the consumer of the work uh, uh, herself. And so that is something very, very hard uh, to translate into actually a virtual experience. So um, with this exhibition, we have the biggest problems uh, in doing virtual walkthroughs because we cannot turn on the works of art and you really have to experience um, the movement of the works. So what we are trying to do is we are trying to, and also this should go online sometime next week, um, we're trying to come up with some kind of web design where we can embed uh, little videos which show the works moving. So that is our solution uh, to uh, that exhibition. And it was a shame the exhibition only opened um, on February the 7th and more or less one month later we had to already close it. And it is an exhibition not only of the work of many very well-known uh, modernist artists like Marcel Duchamp or Man Ray or Josef Albers or Jean Tanguely or Niki de Saint-Fail, but it is also uh, an exhibition uh, with loans um, from Europe and the United States. I think we have at least 40 lenders to the exhibition and it took for a very, very long time to put the exhibition together. So um, it's a shame. Uh, that um, uh, we had to close the museum and that the show is not um, accessible uh, to the academic, but also the broader public audience in St. Louis and beyond. I've talked with lots of directors and senior museum administrators over the last few weeks, all of whom have uh, exhibitions on view with closing dates, many of whom have exhibitions that are traveling multiplied the curator of which I should mention was is Meredith Malone. Um, that show is is scheduled to travel to Charlotte in May. Um, I'm, I don't I don't want to ask a gotcha question that you can't possibly probably at this point have an answer to. But are how are you finding conversations with colleagues going about dealing with exhibition schedules and loan timelines um, in these in these weeks? I think they're going very well. We are um, in conversation with them more or less on a weekly basis because we, as you sort of indicated, we can only really plan more or less on a day-to-day -day basis. And so we don't know. And uh, in the um, case of uh, a multiplied, uh, the problem is too that many of the lenders are in Europe and they cannot even 
travel to the United States in order to uh, then travel with the works uh, to um, North Carolina. Uh, so we don't even know how to make that transition possible right now. And so we are in touch with the Bechtler on, you know, on a weekly basis. Um, Meredith Malone is very active and we are right now, you know, we're every week we have some new dates of when it might work. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. It's it's a it's a big puzzle this exhibition because of so many lenders and because it travels and you can imagine that and say museum director um, I'm obviously now interested too to even reopen the building with the exhibition and to have the possibility to at least have the exhibition up for a couple more weeks before we travel it to the Bechtler uh, because um, the um, the exhibition time was uh, cut short um, so. Uh, suddenly. I think I've said this on other bon on, on some of these other bonus episodes we've done, but I'll say it again, is I have had, uh, you know, off the record conversations with, with directors and senior staff over the last couple of weeks. Um, everybody says some version of what, what, what you just said. Everybody's trying to extend shows. Everybody's trying to extend loan agreements. Everybody is often quite happy to extend loan agreements on works of theirs that are in other places. Everybody's just trying to make it work without knowing much. Um, there's a lot of what in another context would be called school spirit going around. That is very true. I, we are all in the same boat and we really all try <clears throat> to collaborate with each other <clears throat> the best we can. So um, everybody is understanding the other person and um, <clears throat> the position in which which we all share with each other. So it's it's a very um, strange experience because museums are so much about planning into the future. We're oh always God. two years uh, ahead of ourselves and all of a sudden we cannot do that anymore. And I think that also instills this kind of sense of uncertainty and instability, uh, uh, um, you know, as a daily experience. To add to the absurdity, comma, uh, the Kemper just opened uh, an expansion. How how did you expand? How much? And had, did you have the opportunity to kind of learn much about the space or to show it off before you had to close? Yes, um, we basically opened the largest part of the expansion um, in late September uh, with a big exhibition um, by A Weiwei. And uh, obviously this went very well. So we did work in part of the space. The only spaces which weren't finished then were, was the, were the lower, new lower galleries. So the new uh, facade, the new lobby, uh, the new uh, Kemper Gallery for um, works post-1945, all that was finished. So what was not finished were the lower galleries, which we just opened in February. So um, downstairs we have now a video gallery, galleries for works on paper, and a teaching gallery in a smaller open gallery space for historical materials in which we are showing antique Greek vases. So we had the opportunity to actually uh, curate uh, these new spaces we opened them in February and then unfortunately had to close them in mid-March. But the fall semester with the grand opening in September, uh, that went very well and um, brought um, many, many visitors 
um, uh, to to the new uh, to the new museum or to the expanded museum. Uh, we also expanded um, the sculpture garden um, outside of the museum. It's the uh, Steinberg Weil sculpture garden, and we added a, a Dan Graham uh, a sculpture, a very interactive piece, which uh, draw a lot, drew a lot of people also onto the new um, spaces, the new um, landscapes, uh, landscaped spaces on campus. So it was a very different experience than before. Before the museum was basically in between uh, some parking lots, and now we are in a park-like setting, which attracts um, many more um, uh, visitors, specifically um, just St. Louis um, uh, people who want to walk their dogs or want to walk, want to go for a walk on the weekends, um, and uh, they walk on they they walk into campus, so the campus is much more accessible. Um, it lost, I think, a lot of its elite status uh, and is much more inviting for everyone, not only for uh, faculty, students and staff of the university. And um, that has a very um, nice impact um, on the museum because we get many more um, um, walk, walk-in visitors, which uh, were much much more scarce uh, before the expansion. So we're very happy with these new spaces and hope that soon um, we can reutilize them and reopen them. I should add that uh, Washington University just is in the throes of really a a giant capital project, um, the result of which is to um, make the Kemper to transform the Kemper from what had been a slightly hidden front door to the university. And it's now a much more public, open, um, evident entrance to, to the campus, um, both for, for the neighborhood just to the north and for people in, uh, visiting Forest Park um, across, more or less across the street. So much more, uh, albeit in a different setting, much more kind of the way the Yale University Art Gallery operates between New Haven and Yale's campus than, say, how Harvard's does, kind of tucked on a street just off of um, uh, the main yard. Is that all fair? <laughs> That's fair. And maybe to add is really that uh, we implemented um, an art on campus program uh, 10 years ago, and we're able really to place a lot of uh, contemporary um, sculptures, um, many of them commissions, throughout campus. And so that also had really the very positive effect that more of the students and faculty started talking about art. And now with the expanded sculpture garden directly in front and leading up to the museum, um, that even uh, multiplies um, uh, this effect. So people are congregating um, around art and uh, start really talking about art. And that was really not possible in in the past. So it's a we are in a great situation and just got, got caught in the middle of it uh, by the virus. Do you think the, the present, the, this, you know, series of cascading oddnesses that, that we're all experiencing, do you think the present will have an impact on how you and the museum work and function after it's all over? Yes, of course. Like, I think um, 
all museums right now. Um, you might have heard that too from uh, colleagues of mine. Uh, people are already talking about um, how we might be able to reopen, when we can reopen. And uh, so there are already mathematicians at work really calculating of how many visitors can enter the space and still um, and, and we can still guarantee the social distancing of six feet. Uh, so uh, we are thinking of, you know, providing masks uh, for visitors uh, uh, that uh, enter the museum and other protective equipment. So the thinking, I think, already right now is a very different one. We know that the experience of museums as being one a person among a crowd of people will not come back very uh, very soon. That might take years. Uh, the experience in the next half year and the next two years will certainly be to provide a space where you can engage with works of art, um, but will also but where you also will be able uh, to practice social distancing. We're talking in the middle of a situation, not at the end of it. Um, so I don't want to ask this question in too specific a way, but maybe, but broadly speaking, does being a university art museum shield you in some ways from the financial pressures faced by art museums that are more dependent on admissions revenues than you are, which is to say you're not at all dependent on them? <laughs> it's a very good question. Uh, and I think I don't know the answer to that yet. However, um, so far the university, Washington University is very resilient, but the economic downturn is also a reality. And I know that we will be, that we will uh, be hit as well by it. And we will have to change accordingly. What this exactly means right now, I don't know yet, but it might um, for example, I could I can su suggest that we are playing with ideas of maybe only doing two exhibition slots a year, uh, working more with a permanent collection uh, in the future, reducing these large scale loan exhibitions. So there's a multi, you know, there are many, many possibilities and opportunities to rethink of how we are working. Right now, um, we are really not yet hit uh, uh, by the economic downturn, other than um, that uh, there's a hiring freeze in place. I think I can say that publicly. Um, and that is in place too, as I know, at Princeton, um, at most uh, uh, universities. And since um, I think universities also work with their endowments, the effects uh, of the recession might come later um, than uh, in public museums, uh, which like the Guggenheim or um, the Whitney already now, uh, you know, have to grapple with financial, with enormous financial losses. Yeah, just to give listeners some kind of idea of the difference between uh, a Kemper, which is free to visit, and the Guggenheim, which is whatever the price is these days, the Guggenheim does um, around a quarter of its operating revenue from those admissions fees. And the Kemper, because it's free, <laughs> right. does none of its 
<laughs> revenue from admissions. Um, but at the same at the same time, you also have to uh, understand, um, and I'm really in in uh, weekly conversations with other art museum directors. Uh, we are dependent on the uh, funds we receive from the university, and so the question is, um, you know, uh, will there be cuts to these funds? Uh, what will it really mean uh, over the last uh, over the next two years? But we are not as vulnerable um, as uh, the Whitney or, um, or the Guggenheim, for example. Specifically, New York museums, I think, are hard hit because even if the situation gets better, and um, you know, um, we can um, begin to visit museums again, there won't be as many visitors as there were in the past. So, I don't. So in that sense, we are very we are very lucky in that sense, uh, and um, um, should be grateful uh, for for uh, our situation. Finally, uh, one of the things a museum director does, of course, is 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 run a museum staff is 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 to be a leader inside the institution. Are there instructions or guidance you've given to your staff and to your your curators about? how how or what they might be thinking through as we wait to see what happens in weeks or months? Like um, many uh, institutions um, around the country and around the world, we are meeting <laughs> very regularly, but we are meeting on Zoom now. <laughs> so uh, instead of having senior staff or all staff meetings um, in the museum, in physical spaces. We are doing it via Zoom right now. And so far that works very well. I have to say we have a very proactive uh, staff and all of them also came up with um, projects long-term and short-term they are working on from at home. Uh, so we have a clear communication and plan in place of what we are doing uh, remotely and maybe also to advance projects which we never had the time to advance. Uh, so we're working on that. Uh, our education department, uh, I have to say, is as busy as never before because they really had to switch um, uh, to, uh, you know, all these uh, digital uh, technologies and uh, really reinvent uh, the entire uh, department. So they're certainly very, very busy. And the curators, we are, on the one hand, really trying on the, uh, to solve uh, these existing problems uh, with um, exhibitions and um, us not knowing what the future might bring and how we can travel them and what our um, exhibition schedule is. Uh, but we also, um, and that's maybe one of the um, yeah, best outcomes of uh, this whole uh, remote uh, situation, we are starting to plan to do more and more live events on Zoom. And mm -hmm. so uh, on April the 24th and uh, 25th, actually, it's a Saturday at 11 a.m., um, Meredith Malone, the curator of the uh, Multiplied Edition Matt exhibition, will be in conversation with um, Alexander Kaufman, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and they will be talking about Marcel Duchamp and uh, the exhibition um, edition Matt, and that will happen as a Zoom conversation. And um, so far, our experiences are really that 
via Zoom now, we can reach a much larger audience than we did than we could before. So rather than having just the gallery audience we are used to, we are now um, able to reach national and international audiences. And one reason of why we scheduled at 11 a.m. is that then people in Europe also still have the possibility um, to um, uh, connect to us before they go to dinner. I just realized that uh, sometime next year, uh, every museum studies journal is going to have an article titled uh, Pandemic as Experimentation Opportunity. <laughs> Yeah, so this is I mean this is a positive uh, outcome. These Zoom uh, Zoom uh, Q and As or Zoom lectures um, that is certainly something we would never have tried um, if we were not forced to, and uh, they do connect uh, a much more diverse audience. Uh, so that's a nice um, that's a very nice uh, experience. So there are also positive things uh, coming out of that. Sabina Ekman, thank you. Thank you. Just when the world seems to be shrinking, the staff at the Harvard Art Museums hopes to play a small part in expanding it. We invite you to take a moment, when you can, to enjoy a work of art. Browse images of our world-class collections, approximately 250,000 artworks that range from ancient to contemporary and span much of the globe. Dive into the stunning flora and fauna depicted in our special exhibition, Painting Edo Japanese Art from the Feinberg Collection. Or take a behind-the-scenes look at projects in our renowned conservation labs. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we're sharing highlights of artworks chosen by staff and participating in the hashtag Museum from Home and hashtag Museum Moment of Zen initiatives. All of these and more you can explore at harvardartmuseums.org. We wish you all good health and fervently hope to see you all in our galleries soon. Hello, this is Roxana Velasquez, the Maruja Baldwin Executive Director at the San Diego Museum of Art. The doors of our museum are temporarily closed, but access to the arts remain open and alive, digitally and virtually. During this unprecedented time, SEMA continues to provide access to magnificent works of art, special performances, and behind-the-scenes video, all accessible from home. Experience virtual tours, listen to audio clips by our curators, and watch in gallery ballet performances on our YouTube channel and on the SEMA mobile app. Explore our extraordinary collection of Spanish old masters, Zurbaran, El Greco, Murillo, Goya. Visit our exceptional Giorgione. Journey through miniature Indian paintings from the Edwin Binney Collection and much more. We look forward to welcoming visitors from around the world back to the museum's gallery soon. In the meantime, enjoy virtual SDMA on our website at sdmaart.org to stay connected, engaged, and continue to be creative. From the Des Moines Art Center, through its collections, exhibitions, and educational programming, the Des Moines Art Center provides opportunities for transformational art experiences. This week, the Art Center launched seven virtual tours of their permanent collections and special exhibitions. Visitors across the globe can walk through galleries of contemporary art housed in three buildings designed by world-renowned architects, and peruse special exhibitions featuring the artworks 
of Hedda Stern, Carla Black, and more, all at DesMoinesArtCenter.org slash visit slash virtual tours. The tours were produced in partnership with EMC insurance companies. back. Rebecca Rabineau, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. How are you? How is your staff? Um, I'm well, as well as everyone says, as well as could be expected given the current circumstances. And I think the same could be said for our staff. We are in the really fortunate, fortunate position of not having had to let go or furlough anyone. So, um, you know, everyone has their own personal circumstances, but one thing I'm glad we could do for our staff is to not add one extra level of stress to them. They know that they will be continuing to get paid. I'll ask you in a moment about the ways in which the present is influencing the institution, but as, as you brought it up, does being free for both admission and public programming, I should note, play a role in your ability to keep staff and that you're not dependent on or reliant really almost at all on on gate revenue? Um, it's a great question. And I think just for the purposes of this, if you will indulge me in reading two sentences, which yeah. is our mission statement, it's a great place to start. I think every director knows in a time of crisis, go back to that mission statement. And we had just recrafted it two years ago. So um, the Menil Collection, for those of people who are listening who may not know, is a, a museum that is set in central Houston, Texas. And the mission statement reads, the Menil Collection is committed to its founders belief that art is essential to human experience. Set in a residential Houston neighborhood, the Menil fosters direct personal encounters with works of art and welcomes all visitors free of charge to its museum buildings and surrounding green spaces. So, you know, that's something that we always bounce all Everything I do is bounced off the mission statement, and it just so happens that um, the founders, John and Dominique Domenial, believed that art was an essential part of human existence and experience, and there shouldn't be any barriers to it. So the museum has always been free. Everything we do, even parking, is free here. Um, and it turns out that during a pandemic, that is an excellent business model. I have spoken to a number of other museum directors who don't charge admission, and all of them are in, you know, look, it's challenging for everyone, but when you're not expecting significant revenue that then doesn't show up, you didn't budget for it. So a number of us in conversations find that while our revenue is certainly off for our FY20 budgets, it wasn't devastating. And I think where we're all anticipating much more pain is when we enter our next fiscal year. It's not because of the number of people who come into the museum, but it's because these museums that don't charge admission are, are very dependent on philanthropy. And, um, you know, it, it's going to be a really hard year for everybody, including including these museums like ours that got off maybe a little bit less painfully than some of our colleagues did who do charge admission. When I spoke with a long-retired director a couple days ago, um, and he talked about how when he had worked with his board and government to go free uh, many years ago, that... Um, Strangely, the idea of um, a catastrophic event, um, I think in this case they were thinking hurricane, 
came up and that 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 not having being able to rely on endowment in a certain way instead of on earned revenue was a long-term institutional well-being uh, mechanism as well as being uh, mission-centric. Right. And I think that's really played out. There's pretty much any institution that follows that model right now is just feeling a little bit less pain in the immediate near term. And I just want to stress that because it's coming. That pain is coming. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, you know, as we're talking at the end of April, there's just so much we don't know that I'm not even going to ask. I don't believe in speculation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just for Houston Museums, I'll say that, you know, we get, we receive some support from our uh, state government, but it's all derived entirely from hotel occupancy taxes. So, you know, we can already anticipate that there will be no no funding that's coming in or none, no substantial funding that's coming in. And then um, when you compound it with just, you know, people's uh, lessened ability to give philanthropically, that's that's where all of these institutions, at least in Texas, that don't charge admission are going to feel a real squeeze. Obviously, you're closed. But what are the other impacts that that this is having on, on, on the institution? So, I mean, things like are, are people using the grounds more or accessing the grounds more is, 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 are you noticing changes in how the staff and, and, and indeed you work? What are, what are some of the ways uh, this is impacting y'all? Sure. Um, yeah. And I just, you said, you know, obviously we're closed and we are and we're not. So the, the Menil consists of five art buildings spread over 30 acres in a residential neighborhood. And so the art buildings are closed, but our outdoor spaces, our green spaces, the public sculpture, all of that remains accessible. We've turned off the water fountain so people are not encouraged to press the button for their dogs, you know, to access water. And we've removed some of the outdoor furniture. We're doing everything we can following all local um, recommendations for parks, et cetera. Um, but people are using the green spaces and appreciating them in a way that is amazing. Every afternoon we have, um, they seem to alternate. There's a saxophone player and a trump trumpeter who uh, stand in the front courtyard of the Menil Drawing Institute, so our most recently completed building, um, which has amazing acoustics in the courtyard. And people set up picnic blankets, sort of socially distanced around, and they just listen. And it is so beautiful. And the weather has been gorgeous here in Houston. So there's this also this very strange moment that feels when I when I walk around, it feels almost I don't know, like festive or happy. And and that's a real disconnect because it's, of course, this moment is anything but that. But I do feel very fortunate to be in Houston right now um, and spending a lot of time at the Menil because there's a lot of space to spread out. And so the morning doves are cooing and the crepe myrtles are blowing in the wind and there's music wafting by and people, you know, biking through with their face masks on. But people are able to see each other and be outside. And the Menil, you know, brings that sense of solace. I think as a, as an institution, there's always been um, a sense of spirituality to the Menil, not, and just to be clear, not religion, but a sense of a place where one's, if you would like 
to use this phrase, like your, your soul could sort of soar. At least that's how I feel when I walk into the buildings, that there's a really beautiful installation and Renzo pianos, light filled spaces are walking around the grounds. And I just, I feel that every, every time I'm here, especially now. We'll have a link to your Instagram on uh, the show page. Uh, there is an, uh, a video on your Instagram of, of just what you <laughs> described of, of kind of an outdoor concert in progress. Just for the sake of argument, let's say that museums, are, are including yours, are, are closed for three or four or five months and that that impacts how we all work, including your staff. How, mm-hmm. how does a, a closure of, you know, three, four, five, six months impact um, what the institution does and is able to do in the months after it opens, reopens? Sure. Well, I mean, the impact is huge. Some people can work very effectively from, you know, remote locations and others not at all. So there's a wide range there. Um, For museum directors, we are on conference calls, video chat calls from eight in the morning, sometimes till eight at night. And everything takes twice as long because there's the requisite, oh, is that your pet? Oh, what a cute child. Oh, don't go to the bathroom with your camera on. You know, like all of those things have happened. And, and, you know, it was sort of charming and fun at first, and now it can be really frustrating. It's just a very inefficient way to get anything done. But for for me here, the staff is our number one concern. And so we have um, begun all sorts of initiatives. We have a staff newsletter that goes out once a week that always has sort of a a contest, you know, just something to keep morale up, sharing ideas. Who knew? I did not know that you could put scallions upright in water and they would root and you could plant them. And, and, you know, so just fun ways to expand out the amount of time before you have to go to the grocery store again. Um, Artists who are doing work or sharing pictures of it with their colleagues. Um, We also send out daily emails to, to all of the staff to keep them as up to date as possible on all sorts of things. I don't know what's coming next, but I do know that communicating and even saying, I don't know, but here's what we're thinking is a very helpful thing. Um, how, what, what it'll be like in the coming months, I have a feeling that we'll sort of work backwards. So when we close down, first we close to the public. And then we closed to the staff who were sort of, or we allowed the staff who were feeling uncomfortable to stop coming in. And then we closed to staff, but we were still doing some things like people were coming in once a week to check the mail and things like that. And then when we were told that there was a stay at home order, that stopped and we had really only security and engineering here. I anticipate that when we get the all clear, that process will reverse. And so it'll slowly ease back into the other thing. There will be obviously all sorts of safety protocols put in plan. And right now, every museum in the country, I know, if not most of the world, is working on reopening plans. What is that going to look like? For every museum, it's a little different. Um, for At the Menil, we're doing something um, maybe a little out of the box. We are, instead of working towards a reopening, sort of like the first three months and the next three months, Um, we've created phases that we've color coded that range from yellow, which is basically the state of things today so that there are COVID cases nationally and locally to um, it goes through green, blue, and then ends with violet, in which case there are, you know, a few 
cases nationally and none that have been reported in our county for the past six weeks. And we have all sorts of protocols that follow those. So, um, you know, from what staff are required to wear, safety measures, public, you know, entry, limited entry, face masks required, who should be here, who should not, gatherings, public programs, you know, every how this impacts everyone. So we're in the course of doing that. And the reason we're doing it in that way is because based on everything I've read and heard, um, it's going to be a dance. It's not going to be, I don't think this is going to be a linear recovery. I think it's going to be a few steps forward, maybe some steps backward. It's wildly um, dramatic and time intensive to start and stop. I sort of, I'm teaching one of my teenage sons to drive. And so that's the analogy. I'm like, don't be so heavy footed with the brake. So what I'm trying to do is create something where we can very easily flow from one of our phases to the other. Do Are there now some, an uptick in reported cases? Well, let's go back to our phase yellow and start putting in those protocols, have things lightened up, well, we can move on to a different phase so that it becomes a much more uh, flowing way of moving back and forth as opposed to a linear thing that we're going to have to sort of abruptly stop and then go back to the beginning. You must be spending more time on Zoom calls and conference calls with local government than you ever had before. A lot of Zoom calls, and I will tell you my secret, and I know then that becomes public, but I have to admit that at least on two occasions, I have said that I was having technical difficulties so that people did not have to see how I looked. (laughs) Appreciating that the answer may be no, does what's happened in the last six weeks have you thinking any differently about mission fulfillment, whether how you try to fulfill mission at the end of April or how you will approach mission fulfillment when, uh, when reopening happens? Well, I feel really fortunate because we were already working on um, some efforts to better fulfill our mission, and we had already put those in place, and I think uh, I stand behind all of them. So, you know, it turns out our ethos is very works out quite well during a pandemic, just in general, the fact that we're free, that we we expand and make possible, um, these experiences for anyone who wants to participate. Um, Secondly, we're already several years into this plan that we had formed to shine a spotlight on our permanent collection. I've worked really hard to engage with the board and the staff and our public um, to change their way of thinking that only a loan show, you know, is worth being excited and that permanent collection is something that is sort of dull and dusty. And to the contrary, we have really made huge strides in re-educating people and we're constantly changing out the permanent collection. In fact, we had a new installation ready to go. So it was lit and labeled the day that we decided to close to the public. So no one's seen it. So our next exhibition is ready to go and it is amazing. Um, We have three loans in it, including a Helen Frankenthaler gigantic painting that was made in the early 70s and has not left the house in which it's been installed since that time. So, you know, Mary Course and and a a whole room of Flavin, it's a beautiful installation. So this idea of sort of focusing on the permanent collection, we wanted to do that so we could learn more about 
what we have. I also feel so strongly that there's no point in acquiring, and we do actively acquire artworks. There's no point in acquiring works if you're not going to show them. So by focusing on this, which we are already doing, that gives us a whole lot more flexibility in our schedule. And it allowed us to immediately start rearranging our exhibitions. So like so many museums, we have um, pushed our spring shows. We plan to show them through the summer now because people didn't get to see them for the full run. Um, we also immediately began curbing our spending, which does go to you know the mission statement too, because we want to be able to um, make all of this available for everybody. So figuring out like what can we do and still be dynamic and interesting and cutting edge, um, but also sustainable. So we're spending a lot of of time about that and. Um, you know, I guess as part of uh, this as well, when I think about the mission statement, I also think of the value statement that we created at the same time for the staff, um, which really sort of uh, highlights things like empathy and excellence and intellectual curiosity and community. And having worked so hard to create a staff culture that values these things has made it easier to get through this moment and will make it easier to reopen as well. Is there anything that was museum business as usual in February that you think might be gone forever? Gone forever. I think after what happened, we can't, future, for, you yeah. can't say forever. I think for the foreseeable future, gathering people you know, in small spaces, I don't see that coming back anytime soon. That's not a forever thing, but I'm spending a lot of time trying to think what, what is an exhibition opening look like? And it's going to look different. Or what does a, what does an evening program look like? I mean, anywhere where you have or, people seated. Right. In a curator led tour, you know, all of those things where people want to be together, they want to hear information the Menil really, really emphasizes this idea of actually being present in the space. It's not just the artwork when you're in this building, which is the main building designed by Renzo Piano, but even, you know, we have a Cy Twombly pavilion also designed by Piano and then the new um, Menil Drawing Institute by Johnston Markley, the LA-based firm, Light, the natural light is such a key part of it. And it is... Um, really important. So I, I wonder what that will feel like when we, when we reopen getting people, how do we create community without putting people in close contact with one another? I haven't figured that out yet. Is that something that that your full staff has begun to think about in a, you know, air quotes, formal way yet? Um, it is something that I would say at least 75% of the staff is thinking about. Sure. Wow. Wow. Well, because if you think about, no, but I mean, th right before, so in March I was in New York city, right. And it was interesting because I was at the Richter opening and that was sort of the beginning of my visit. And then right before I left, I was at the armory show and it was just, you know, you're shoulder to shoulder with people. And it was great. And it was fun to see all these old friends and acquaintances and colleagues. But, you know, 
I don't, I, I just don't know that that's going to come back immediately, right? That people will be comfortable and different people will be comfortable with different levels. And, you know, I, I ask myself, is that based on age? Um, will our sort of young collectors, our contemporary group be comfortable with certain things that maybe some of our older patrons wouldn't be? That's some of the feedback that I've received. I've tried to engage our board and, and ask them, you know, where, where is your comfort level? What I hear from a lot of people is that um, being outside feels more comfortable to them. And, and that's a place where we're just so fortunate because we have amazing outdoor resources and areas where we can do things. So what does that mean? Is it having live conversations? We're, we're showing works, this really amazing exhibition by Puerto Rican-based artist uh, Jennifer Alora and Guillermo Casadilla this fall. So while they're here, do we do almost like an outdoor talk that's projected and we can set up picnic blankets for people like every 10 feet? Like how, what do we do? And we haven't found the answer, but we're trying to be really creative. Yeah, as a tennis fan, I get it. I mean, I was on my way to Indian Wells the night before the tournament started when they canceled it. And so, yeah, I was thinking about being around people um, and how that was going to be different. <laughs> yeah, and anyone coughs, even on a Zoom call, and you have to apologize. Like, I just choked on something. It doesn't even matter that you're not in the same room. It's just like instant shame. One thing I've heard from senior museum people is that they have started thinking about whether this interregnum and its after effects will provide opportunities for them to make changes or to try new things that might not have been possible in February. Um, have you thought in any of those terms? No, because I really like the direction we were going, and I think it's a direction that can work with this moment. So I think um, for us, it's going to be more of a question of staying the course. Um, I think what we are doing, we tend to do uh, shows when we work with contemporary artists that are very relevant to what's going on. I mean, this Laura Calzadilla show that I just referenced very much is speaks about climate change and sort of some of the similarities that one can draw from, you know, two port cities with somewhat tropical uh, climates um, that have share sort of energy commerce and economic and ecological um, concerns and interests. And so, I think that for us, creating shows that are thought-provoking and relevant um, is very much what we should be doing, and it's what we've been doing. And it's baked into the DNA and the history of the institution and its founders, so it's, it's not 100%. like you have to learn it and make it up now. Yeah. No. I mean, it's just really, when I'm in doubt, I go back to the mission statement, I go back to our value statement, and the answer is always there. Finally, from a purely leadership point of view, um, how has this changed your job and has it probably changed it for good going forward? I think that um, how has it changed my job? I, I am one with the staff. I think they know that. On the last day that we were open to the public, I worked the front desk. Um, I would not put anyone in a position that I felt was unsafe or that I wouldn't be willing to do myself. I, um, 
I, I think that I have further gained the trust of people here. It hasn't changed my job. Maybe it's just changed the perception of me. Um, I don't know that my job has changed. My job has always been about problem solving. You know, there was, we had Hurricane Harvey. Like this doesn't, I feel like I've had a lot of challenges since I've arrived, but <laughs> we've been able to, <laughs> new building. Um, in a way, it brings us all closer. The staff here are great. They really, really are proud to work at the Menil and they care about it. And, you know, for me, it sounds sappy and ridiculous, but it, it is just such an honor to be here. I think this is one of the most special places I've ever been. Um, it's not to say that every day is fun or easy, because let me tell you, it is not. But it's a very, very special place. Rebecca, thank you. Thank you. Always nice to chat with you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.